1: WTBN Pinellas Park. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Listen, if you know someone in sin and you don't go to them and point it out, I'm not talking about going on a witch hunt here. I'm talking about things that are just obvious, things that they that they need to know about. If you don't do it, you don't love them. You don't love them. You love yourself more than them. You're thinking about you more than them.
0: What kind of love is it when we are afraid to say what we think for fear that we might be rejected? We are more interested in our feelings than we are in the good of the other person. God doesn't get then out of shape over our feelings. He wants there to be lasting change in our lives. You have to go deeper where the problems really are in order for there to be a real change. I hope you have been with us for the previous messages in this series out of 2 Corinthians. Pastor Steve, our teacher here on Verse by Verse, has been helping us see how God can work through our sorrow to bring about real change in our lives. If you've missed any of the messages, you can listen to them or download them on our website, versebyverseradio.org. There are lots of other resources available on the website. We're glad you're listening today. Here's Pastor Steve.
1: I understand this as one who has to counsel people. You know that you, you may deeply hurt them by what you have to say, and you don't regret saying it because people need to hear the truth of the Word of God, but you know that it's going to hurt them. And nobody takes pleasure in that. Paul didn't take pleasure in hurting and inflicting pain upon the Corinthians. It's sort of like this. It's it's like a loving father. Paul was like a loving father who has to spank his, his little disobedient child, Because he loves that child, has to do that because he has to teach correction and there's consequences for sin. But also because he loves that child, he doesn't take pleasure in knowing that he's going to inflict pain. It's it's sort of like um, that, that father who has to say to his child, which they never believe, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I tried not to say that, by the way, because I knew that wasn't true. It was going to hurt them more than it hurt me. But I also knew that honestly it did hurt me. To do that, a different type of pain There's an emotional anguish to hurting a child. No, nobody wants to do that. But when you love someone, you must hurt them to help them. Someone may say, and and, and, I, and I hear this, and I know this is the attitude of many Christians. Then why inflict pain at any at any time at all? That that is something that Christians believe. Many of them. It's an attitude that that some people have in addressing the sin issues in other. People, if I hurt them, uh, why do it then? I would like peace at all costs. See, you want to understand Paul's heart here, and you want to understand what the Word says. Paul's goal was not to bring continuous sorrow to the Corinthians and leave them in that state of perpetual sadness. That, That wasn't what he was saying. His ultimate objective was to bring temporary sorrow to the Corinthians over their sin so that their sorrow would result in repentance. And when they repented, their sorrow would vanish. And that is precisely what happened. Let's look at verses 8 and the beginning of verse 9. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, meaning I don't regret it now. Why, Paul? Though I did regret it, When I sent it, for I see that this letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Literally, that expression, for a while, means for an hour. And he's not talking about a literal, physical hour. It means that it was brief, a comparatively short time. He goes on to say, I now rejoice... Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. In other words, the reason Paul has no regrets now about sending such a strong letter, though it brought tremendous sorrow to the entire church, was because their sorrow was just brief, it was temporary, and it resulted in repentance. That's what Paul is teaching. Now, I want to pause here for a few minutes and pull out some important principles and appropriate applications and truths from this text. I think this is very important. First of all, it it is significant to realize that Paul did not mind causing short-term pain in order to produce long-term good. That's very important. He did not mind bringing the Corinthians sorrow for a brief time if their sorrow was to lead them to repentance. Now, what does that say to us? This is very pertinent. It says that if we really love someone, really love someone with biblical love, as Paul loved the Corinthians, then we're going to have to wound them with the truth and pointing out their sin. That's right. This is precisely what the writer in Proverbs means, in Proverbs 27, 6, when he says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. It is someone who is a true friend who will love you enough to wound you with the truth. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. It is your enemy, not someone who loves you, who will deceive you and tell you everything is okay with you when it's not okay with you. You do have to wound people in order to help them because sorrow is a prerequisite to repentance. Nobody ever repented without grief over their sin. And nobody ever had grief over their sin unless their sin was pointed out to them. But, you know, there are many Christians who are not willing to do this. I I know that. I know that though I'm going to be strong in preaching this and I've said it to people privately, they will not do it. They won't do it. They would rather avoid the consequences of having someone be annoyed at them for pointing out their sin or the consequences of causing pain by confronting them about their sin. And they just won't do it. But I want to tell you something, and I'm going to hurt you to tell you this. If you avoid pointing out a fellow believer's sin because you don't want them to feel bad, then at least be honest about it. You do not love them like you think. You are deceiving yourself. You do not have their best interests at heart. You may say that you love them, but you do not love them because if you truly love them, you would want them to repent because that is what's best for them. What you really are concerned about is yourself more than them. What will they think about me? What will be our relationship after? I don't want to make them cry. So you really, you don't, you don't love them. Paul loved the Corinthians, and he took the consequences. Even if the whole church rejected him, he still told them the truth in love. In fact, if you look back, look back at Second Corinthians 2, 4, and let me read the whole thing to you again. We just touched on the first part before. He says in verse 4 of chapter 2, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. But he didn't stop there. He explained why. Not so that you would be made sorrowful. That wasn't my ultimate goal, to make you feel bad but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Oh, Corinthians, though I made you feel bad, understand behind that was a heart of love that cared about you. Who else would tell you this but someone who loves you? If I didn't care about you, I'd say everything's cool, everything's fine. You're okay. Listen, if you know someone in sin and you don't go to them and point it out, and I'm not talking about going on a witch hunt here talking about things that are just obvious things that they that they need to know about if you don't do it you don't love them you don't love them you love yourself more than them you're thinking about you more than them now i know that that though this is what the word teaches i know some will not do that but i hope that those of you who are open to the word of god will do that and won't justify it and won't try to explain it away and and won't let your emotions control what to do. Let the word of God control what you do. You say, well, it's awkward. It's, it, I don't feel right about doing it. Well, sure it's awkward. You'd be abnormal if you enjoyed this kind of stuff. We do what we do out of obedience to Christ's lordship, not based on how we feel. So that's truth number one. Secondly, Paul states that the Corinthians' sorrow led them to repentance. That's, that's why he rejoiced. That his letter caused them sorrow. But what exactly does it mean to repent? We we use the, that word repentance, repent in theological circles, and we use it from the pulpit. We use it in our teaching. But what does it mean? This is critical that you understand this. Critical. The Greek word essentially means a change of mind and heart that leads to a turning from sin to God. Now, did you get that? Repentance means a change of mind and heart that leads to a turning from sin to God. Now watch this. Repentance is not simply being sorry for your sin. Or, and it's not even that you just think differently about your sin. It's not just that. It doesn't mean that you simply have regrets about sins you've done. Many people have deep regrets and are even sorry for this sin, but only because they see the damage their sin has caused others. Or they feel bad because they got caught. They do have remorse. I mean, it's like a man who is, who is in a drunken stupor, and he beats his wife and children and says uh, vulgar and foul things to them, and then he, then he sobers up later, and he feels so bad. He feels bad about his sin. That's not repentance. Feeling bad and sorry and sorrowful for your sin is not repentance. That's part of it, but it's not repentance. True repentance, watch this, always involves God-given grief and hatred over our sin, a grief and a hatred that causes us to turn from our sin to God. There must be that turning or it's not repentance. I hope that you got that. This is so critical. Repentance is always preceded by a sorrow for sin that drives us to forsake our sin. It's not just feeling sorry for it. It's not just uh, as you hear people say today. Well, sorry. It's not. It's not just that. It's not. I I just feel bad about it. Listen, Judas felt bad about what he did, but didn't repent. Repentance is always preceded by a sorrow for sin that drives us to forsake our sin. In fact, the best illustration in the in the entire Bible about a man who was genuinely repentant as he anguished over his sin is King David, who was guilty of fornication with Bathsheba and on top of that made sure that her husband, Uriah the Hittite, was murdered. In the battle. And this is revealed in Psalm 51. It's important that you turn there. Psalm 51. We won't go through the whole thing. But I want you to see what repentance looks like. This is what it looks like in a man who knows he's sinned. And remember the background of this. And it really ties into what we're saying. Remember that David had been on his, his rooftop and he saw Bathsheba bathing. And he desired her and he knew it was wrong and he had sexual relations with her. Nathan the prophet, bless his heart, courageous man of God, came and gave a, essentially a parable to David. And here was the essence of the parable. He said, imagine that there's a man who has many little lambs, many lambs, more than he needs, but there's one other man over here who has just one, one little lamb, precious little lamb. And this man who has all these other little lambs, he goes and takes that little lamb from this man, the only one he had. What should be done to the man like that? And David said, he must be punished. He must be dealt with how horrible. And Nathan, with boldness, said, thou art the man. You had more wives and concubines than you needed. And Uriah the Hittite had one wife, and you took her, and then you made sure he died. And Psalm 51 is David expressing the deep anguish of his heart. I want to just read a little bit to you. And I want you to notice that there was no justification for his sin. He didn't blame God. He just dealt with it. This is not simply a confession. This is confession that has repentance at the heart. And that's all true confession of sin is repentance. He said this. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Notice that that this is a man who feels bad about his sin. He's coming to God for cleansing. He said, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. They bothered him. He hated them. And notice this, against you and you only, I've sinned. And done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He's saying it's not, it's not your fault what I did. It's my fault totally. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part you'll make me to know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart, O O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do you sense the anguish of David's heart? He made no excuses. He didn't blame God at all, as, as many do. I mean, if David lived in our... In our era in which God is blamed for everything, he might have said, well, it's not my fault. You made me with these sexual desires. It's your fault. And God, you're sovereign. I didn't have to be on my rooftop. You could have orchestrated other circumstances, and you didn't have to bring Bathsheba up there. It's not me who's to blame. It's you. He didn't say any of that. that that's not only absurd, that's blasphemous. He takes full responsibility for his actions. He recognizes that his sin was first and foremost against God. Did you get that? Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against Uriah. But that's not his primary concern. He is guilty before a holy God, and that's why he's repentant. He understands that he has grieved the holiness of God, and in his grief he hates his sin. That's true repentance. And he says he sinned because he's a sinner. Not because of circumstances. He sinned because by nature he was a sinner. He said, I, I was, I'm a sinner from my mother's womb. Lord, I'm a sinner. That's why I need cleansing. See, David was not like many who merely feel bad because they were caught and they tell God they're sorry, but they have no heart to forsake the sin that they've been involved in. Sorry does not cut it. It is grief and hatred for sin that causes you to turn away. And you know what? The Corinthians were like that. That's why Paul's rejoicing. Their sorrow led to genuine repentance. And in this case, the repentance meant that they changed their attitude as well as their actions towards Paul. The desire to be restored to fellowship with Paul was the proof of their repentance. Did you get that? That's very important. You see, it isn't true repentance if you've had a broken relationship with someone and you simply feel bad about it, but you do nothing to bring healing to it. You just feel bad. The proof of repentance is that your sorrow over your sin leads you to change your behavior and become reconciled. That's the proof of repentance. Don't say you're repentant if you just say, Lord, sorry, and that's it. You do something about it. If your sin has led you to be estranged from someone, if that's your sin, then the test of if you're really repentant is if you'll go to be reconciled. Take those steps of reconciliation. See, there must be the fruit of repentance. If there's true repentance, there must be the fruit of repentance. I, I'd like you to keep your place in 2 Corinthians. Let's go back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. Now, in Matthew, chapter 3, we read about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, his whole ministry was a ministry of proclaiming repentance. The kingdom of God, he said, is here, and you must, he called the nation to repent. Uh, the baptism that he did was not uh, believer's baptism. Believer's baptism, what every Christian should, should do to confess before men that they've come to faith in Christ. But John's baptism was a baptism saying, in essence, I have repented of my sin. I've turned from my sin. I'm awaiting the coming of the king and the ushering in of the kingdom. And he says in verses 1 and 2, it says in in Matthew, Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Here was his message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not particularly difficult to understand. And you know what? Many Israelites repented. Verse 5, then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now watch this, verse 8, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those would be uh, some Jewish religious leaders from two sects, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, coming for baptism. Here's what John said, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? See, John recognized that they were not repentant. They did not have repentant hearts. And that's why he says in verse 8, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What he's saying to them is, you religious hypocrites, you think because of social and religious pressure that you're going to be baptized by me? I'll not have a part of that absolute hypocrisy because you do not bear the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance mean means that that if there's no if there's genuine repentance, it will always manifest itself in righteous behavior. And John knew that they didn't have that. A person who says, I will repent, does something about it. If you're if you're estranged to someone, true repentance is demonstrated in that you get that straightened out with them. There always is the godly manifestation that comes from true repentance. And you know why? Paul tells us as, he, as we look at verse 9. Paul clarifies. He explains verse 9 of Second Corinthians 7. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. And here's the explanation. Here's why it had to come. For you were made sorrowful, watch this, according to the will of God. Literally, in the Greek, it means according to God. But the thought here is according to the will of God. It's of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Made sorrowful according to the will of God means that God is the one who works in our hearts and brings us this sorrow, this grief for our sin that leads to repentance. It means that it is God's will, it is always God's will that believers repent of their sin. God is the one who grants it. In fact, in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, Paul speaks about that, that the servant of the Lord, he says, must not be argumentative. He must be gentle. He deals with people as God perhaps will grant that person repentance. It's God who grants it. It's God's will that believers repent of their sin. But, but someone may say, but why? Why is it so important? When you know Christ, why, why, why do you have to walk such a straight and narrow path? Why does God really care whether we repent or not? After all, we're saved. We're saved forever. Why is it so important? Notice the last phrase of verse 9. So that, here's his explanation. Here's the reason. So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. What loss is Paul referring to? He's referring to some loss. If you don't repent, there's something you lose. Well, we know that he can't be talking about salvation because the rest of the word of God tells us that our salvation is permanent. It's forever. It's eternal. So he can't be talking about loss of salvation. You know what he is talking about? He's talking about the to, to lose the richness of the Christian life. It's the loss of the richness of a life of obedience to Christ. It's the loss of the joy of fellowship with Christ. It's the loss of, of complete and full fellowship with, with the Lord and with others. That's the loss he's referring to. And and notice, this is helpful. Notice the last two words of this phrase. He says, through us. It's not just that you suffer loss. It's, it's what would come through us, meaning that if the Corinthians turned away from Paul, and the us means other godly teachers, they would be losing out on all that Paul's teaching had to offer them. They'd be forfeiting that. If they rejected Paul, then they would miss out on knowing so much about Christ that Paul could teach them. So much. And it may very well be that in Paul's mind, not only is he referring to the loss in this life, but he may very well be thinking of the loss of spiritual rewards in the future. We've already taught about that from Second Corinthians five, that when we we die, we as believers we stand before the Lord at the uh, bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, and that's a that's a, a place where rewards will be handed out, and those rewards are based on our service and living for Christ. You can lose your rewards. In fact, um, the same the very same language Paul uses here about loss. He he used in 1 Corinthians 3. He said in 1 Corinthians 3.15, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He'll suffer loss of rewards, he means. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. We're not saved by our works, but you would lose rewards.
0: There used to be a popular song that said, love means you never have to say you're sorry. That would only be true if we were all Perfect. I am certainly not perfect, and I doubt if you are either. We need to say we are sorry all the time. We need to repent of the sin that we commit that harms our relationships, and we need to forgive the other person who has hurt us. That's the only way we can move forward in any relationship. Verse by Verse is a radio ministry of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We would love to have you visit us if you are in our area. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord. There are a lot of resources that we make available to you. Call us for more information at 727-239-0306 or look on our website, versebyverseradio.org. This ministry is on the air because of the gifts of partners like you. If God lays it on your heart, think about sending us a gift via the mail, the phone, or the website. That will help us keep on spreading God's truth. Thanks again for tuning in today. For Pastor Steve and the staff, this is Jerry Pruden looking forward to the next time here on Verse by Verse. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's Verse by Verse. W-262-CP. Lots of channels.